Debbie George Addis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about election updates. Dr. Mark Sherwood joins me from Oklahoma and the Buttigieg College debt. Is it a taxpayer's problem? And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And hello again, and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I want to tell you something that happened, I believe, just yesterday in Arizona, and that was that they had a hearing, not in Maricopa County, which we've been speaking about at great length, but they actually also had a hearing in... Um, Pima County and some of the evidence that was presented in Pima County involved actual analysis of the number of people on voter rolls. And so they've done some canvassing there where they basically, it's a combination of number of people in the voter rolls and then the canvassing effort that says, when canvassing again, just to remind you, is when you go around and knock on doors and you say, hello, here I have the Pima County voter records. It shows that, you know, seven people voted from this household. Uh, are there seven people who voted here? And they say, no, no one voted here. And so it's validating the addresses that are given that there were a voter voted from that address. So I sent to Mr. Becker, uh, my happy producer, um, some clips. I wanted to show you the, um, okay, he just jumps right in there. Okay, so I'll just show you a series of these. Leave that up there for one second. Liz Harrington, who has joined us on the show before, she's the one that began the um, audits first in Maricopa County. So she's talking about now with respect to the Pima County audit, I'm not gonna play her clip, but just to see the numbers as one example in Cells, um, Arizona, uh, voting age population, there are 1,375 people who are of the voting age population. Registered voters, 2,762. And before you take that down, leave that one up for one second. I wanna make the point, this is what Dr. Douglas Frank is pointing out, that when voter rolls have more names in them than actual eligible voters, the consequence is the, there is available to those who would electronically manipulate a, 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 you know, he called it a bank account, I think, a, a list of voters whose names can be used to cast votes, who didn't really cast votes as people, but names can be used to cast votes to make up for a, short, a shortcoming where you have, for example, on the night of election, who knew, you know, that Trump was winning someplace, but in these, around the country, we have these swollen voter rolls full of people who didn't, who don't any longer exist, don't belong in the rolls, and, or don't live in that area anymore, but they're there and available to be used for um, people who, uh, to cast votes. So next one, this is, this is Liz Harrington again. Um, she has up in Tapawa, Arizona, voting age population, 182 people, registered voters, 288. As she points out, that's a 158% registration rate. Pretty darn effective. She has another one. Um, let me see, there was one more. Wow, yeah, canvassing of voters. Um, she has 100, so canvass again, knock on doors, hi, how many people voted from here? Canvas of 172 homes in Pima County found 62 early ballots where a voter is not a resident, meaning therefore 45% were potentially fraudulent. So they have this hearing, um, and the reason I want to show you this is one more, I think there's one more clip that was from, um, yeah, this guy, Mark Fincham, I, I believe this is a state senator. He's pointing out, so they have this hearing, they lay out evidence like I'm just telling you what I just was describing to you in Pima County. They have this hearing and 
Um, so afterward, this tweet in the bottom, this is ABC 15, so someone from the ABC station in Arizona is, point, is saying, the Pima hearing is over. Once again, profoundly disappointing how much these legislators will accept conjecture as evidence. Nothing happened. Not one thing outside of lack of process knowledge and poor statistical analysis. So what they're based, so he's, he's just dismissing this reporter for ABC, dismissing the entire presentation at Pima County and saying they didn't have anything. And yet they have what you just saw. Uh, and you see this Mark Fincham responding, the blind pundit once again ignores all the evidence. Most of it's on my page. One other thing that was actually um, that, uh, occurred, um, among the other things at that hearing, there was a little clip. Uh, they talked about how they had, in their canvassing, had gone to a, um, a fraternity on a campus. I think it was SAE. And so they, you know, they knock on the door. Basically, all these voters register at this at this uh, fraternity on a college campus. And the average age of the voters from that fraternity was 45. Now I know that you know some people wait a few years to go to college, but the average age of a whole bunch of voters at a fraternity is 45. That's not legitimate, and everybody knows that. And I want to then also mention uh, in Wisconsin, I think I touched on this, but to remind you, in September, a Wisconsin group was looking through their uh, voter rolls, trying to validate the legitimacy of their voter rolls. They found 23,000 people in the state um, with the same phone number. I, I mean, I, I don't think that could be. And then uh, one other thing, and this was a recent story, and it's up on our website, americacanwetalk.org. AmericaCanWeTalk.org, and I believe we, the title, as we put it in there, was Jeff O'Donnell, Wisconsin Election Irregularities. The article is full of things describing when people dive in and try to study the data with respect to who's in the, um, who's in the voter rolls, the apparent number of people who voted, the number of things that aren't just odd anomalies, but are just preposterous and impossible. It's overwhelming. I'm not going to read the entire uh, two-page article. I'll just tell you one little example was this idea that in, um, in this Wisconsin polling, there was a um, the uh, voting age. They, they had so many people who had were registered to vote of a very, very um, uh, born a long time ago that allegedly they had 120,000 voters who by the birth date in the um, election rolls had to have been over age 118. And there are countless examples. And just this one study of the Wisconsin voter rolls, I urge you to read this, and I'll remind you one more time, go back to what we did yesterday. We played a little clip of Meet the Press. We have five obnoxious liberals sitting around, wringing their hands and bemoaning the fact they have tried to tell the American people there was no election fraud, and these silly Americans, these peasant, ignorant people, cannot believe us. We're telling them there was no election fraud, at least it was an outcome-changing election fraud, and they're bemoaning the fact they're supposed to be journalists, I'd like to remind you, journalists. They are, what they think they are is opinion shapers, and they're bemoaning the fact they cannot convince the American people to just shut up about election fraud. Stop talking about it. We've, we've dismissed it. We have decided it doesn't belong in the American political conversation, so you can't talk about it anymore. That was their message, along with their message of also bemoaning the fact that many, many Trump supporters simply will not agree with the left-wing narrative that January 6th was an insurrection. 
direction. You have an attitude in the media in America, not that their job is to investigate and report, but their job is to decide what they believe is true and pummel the American people over the head until we'll just comply and surrender to what they think. And this is not okay in America. This whole topic of election fraud, as you know, if you watch the show very regularly, we talk about it all the time, just from the perspective that if you don't correct the problems that contributed to election fraud, if you don't correct them, and you don't call out those responsible, and you don't expose the methods used, and you don't pass legislation to prevent those methods from being used in the future, we'll simply never have valid elections for the rest of America, which is really a destruction of the whole idea of we the people govern this country. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. So I mentioned the Star Show, we have a guest joining us. This is a gentleman, he is um, in Oklahoma. He is a um, doctor, Dr. Mark Sherwood, and I will tell you that I mentioned to you um, yesterday um, that I spoke at a conference over the weekend, one of the Clay Clark Reawaken America Tour conferences, and Dr. Sherwood spoke there, but Clay Clark, who's been on the show numerous times, I've been on his show, um, he said early on, you gotta get this guy Mark Sherwood on your show. And um, he, Dr. Sherwood, I met him in a meeting in Tulsa, in September, and then was, he was also at this conference here in Frisco. I want to have him come on and talk with you um, about his treatment, his uh, treatment of people, patients with COVID, and even more, more broadly than just dealing with COVID and the, and the um, available medications and treatments. More broadly, his uh, he and his wife actually have practiced together, practice medicine together. They they are the owners of Functional Medical Institute. Functional. Medical Institute. Dr. Sherwood is a neuropathic doctor. Uh, his wife, Dr. Michelle Sherwood, is a, is a founding physician, and they work together to do more than just heal you once you're sick, but to try to help you learn how to live a healthy lifestyle and to avoid things like COVID and other threats to your health. So let's welcome to the show, please, Dr. Mark Sherwood. Hi. Yeah, Abby, thank you for having me. I really appreciate that introduction. It's so good to see you and finally get to be on your show. I feel so honored and blessed. So thank you very much for having me. Well, you're very kind. I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're so outspoken. I just, I, I'm so grateful for doctors like you in this country because I know many doctors are aware that the way our medical establishment in Washington handled COVID, the policy set in place and kind of the tone of fear really caused many doctors to, to decide, I, I don't want to buck the trend. I don't want to be the one to speak up and disagree. So let me just start with, Clay told me, I think, that you have treated over, is it over 9,000 COVID patients and not lost one? Is that accurate? That is accurate. We have a large community of people. It's uh, now 9,500. And oh. so far we have lost none to this coronavirus concept. And we've done it but by kind of what you talked about at the outset of the show, educating people on the emotional, physical, spiritual aspects of all that, putting it all together so people are not scared. They don't come into it scared, so we eliminate fear immediately, and then we give them what they need to let the body do what it does. And look, the results speak for themselves. Nobody dies. I would have thought this would have been a, a top news story, much like you talked about in the um, first five, you know, I appreciated that. But the, the news is so polarizing and so propaganda driven. They don't communicate truth. It's like trying to talk to a, uh, a tree stump and rationalize <laughs> a tree stump. It's, it's horrible. So yeah, we've been really successful. Praise the Lord. So I give him all the credit and uh, we're blessed with that. Well, let me just start with, so you have people who come to you, uh, to your practice, uh, the Functional Medical Institute, and they're obviously 
I mean, some of them come, they have contracted COVID, they're in some kind of distress. So what are the things that you found that work in treating patients who have COVID? So number one, and this is what we tell people, we want to establish a relationship with them, Debbie. Um, not the conventional patient um, practitioner relationship, but the relationship that is about healer, friend, friend, healer. And so we establish that relationship with them right up front and tell them that we're going to uh, pray with them. We're not going to let them live in fear. And they had to be willing, this is important, to do the things that they have control over to give the body a chance to do what it has control over. And when I talk about that, I'm talking about lifestyle things. So when people change their lifestyle, that you realize quickly that things get better. And to that end, I know people are familiar with this terminology, comorbid conditions, comorbid conditions. The more comorbid conditions you have, the more severe it is. But what if you could take and eliminate the majority of those comorbid conditions? That would be a good thing. And Debbie, that's been the approach that we've taken, elimination of these comorbid conditions such as obesity and all these cardiometabolic, these type two diabetes, these hypertensive situations. And when we've eliminated those things, the lethality of coronavirus has been nil so far. So you, I mean, at the time you're treating them, you are looking at all the comorbidity things. I know you frequently hear people talk about it as a comorbidity, obesity, um, diabetes, and then I guess other things, uh, some compromises of the immune system. So as you're responding to what they present and they're, they feel like they're suffering in the middle of COVID, you're not just saying, here, take these three things, take these three things, but you're really helping address the whole person. Is that what you're saying? That's correct, because here's what we don't want people to do. We don't want them, and I think this will tag very well with what you're saying about everything. You, you don't want them to depend on medicine as a first-line therapy. There's two schools of thought here, I think everyone would agree. There's one side that says you need to um, you know, take an, the vaccine or you're going to die. The other side of the coin says you need to take these medications and not take the vaccine or you're going to die. In both cases, it's depending on... Um, pharmacy and pharmaceuticals to first line defend us. But our human bodies are so supremely structured and orchestrated by what we believe to be the hand of God. And the response therein is always better than mankind's best even concepts and knowledge. So that's been our approach since the beginning. And it, it's worked out pretty, pretty good. I love it. designed by our creator, you know, from, from before when we from before when we were born. Um, so I want to jump into this. So say say I mean I, I know that we've on this show we've had many many doctors talking about all the variety of treatments for COVID. Yeah. When you are getting to pe helping people see the bigger picture, do you have a, a specific health regimen that starts them down on eating and vitamins? I mean, what, what is it you do? I'd, I'd love to understand what you do. Yeah, so number one, we communicate to them. Again, I mentioned that we want to eliminate fear. We, we're not going to live in fear. You're not going to die one day quicker than God says so. We establish that. Number two, we get them putting good food in. And good food means uh, anti-inflammatory foods that are unadulterated, uh, non-processed, um, non-artificial, not chemically uh, laden and genetically modified from the environment. So we bring those in. You can have as much of those as you want. We have a, a list that we call our anti-inflammatory food list. And then we give them also an inflammatory food list. And we explain to them that foods are inflammatory because they never were foods. We call them frankenfoods or fruits. And what happens is with the immune system being surveillance, the immune system looks for foreign invaders. And it responds accordingly by sending inflammatory signals. We all know the immune system 
um, gets responded to or induced by viruses, parasites, bacteria, uh, tissue injury. But we don't think about the massive inducement from the standard American diet. So we eliminate all that mess and get it out of there. And then we move into what does a person need from a supplementary standpoint to uh, augment what the anti-inflammatory foods do not supply. And those would be things like um, adequate vitamin D, omega-3, and everybody needs to do that period. We sometimes will add zinc, C. Um, we add a lot of colostrum. Cows have coronavirus, so we confer some of that adaptive immunity from the cow by taking in colostrum from a well-sourced uh, bovine herd. And then we use broccoli sprout powder that has a lot of these viral inhibition, viral replication uh, inhibitors. And so I find that those things are, are very awesome. We get people outside the sunshine. We talk to them about getting plenty of sleep. Uh, we talk to them about turning off the news that they don't have to have that. And so by putting that process into alignment, um, you know, again, some of them get well immediately. Some of them get well over the couple of days, but eventually they all get well. And um, we've put on medication a few times out of that 9,500, but it's, it's, it's rare we have to even go to medication. And when we do, we just use the medication to kind of tamp down the symptoms and not use it as a first-line therapy. I ho hope that's clear what I just said. I, I believe so. I believe I'm following you. I did actually read your website, not your whole website, but a lot of your website this morning, um, and you had a virus protection checklist, uh, which I thought was really good, uh, free virus protection, a worthy investment, and so you went through some of those things. And actually, I'll tell our listeners, you can go to this website and get this yourself. I'm going to tell yep. you, it's a FMIDR, which is Functional Medical Institute, a DR doctor, I assume, dot com. Uh, and so I believe that's where I got this virus protection. I, mean, I had it emailed to me and I've heard these different things said, but this is actually a handy thing you make available yeah. to everyone. And, and I, I want to mention about the, your comments about fear. It is an astonishing thing how many times the Bible, I didn't make look up again, but how many times, you know, in the Old and New Testament, fear not, do not fear, fear not. Yeah. It's just, just a, a consistent message in the Bible. And tomorrow in this show, I mentioned I have a doctor joining us named, doc, named Dr. Mark McDonald. He's a psychiatrist in Los Angeles, and he's really, he's written a short book. It's actually a very easy read, but he's written a book about just the use of fear in the yeah. American society in response to COVID to manipulate people yeah. into submission. That's pretty much what it is, but uh, he'll be talking about that tomorrow. So fear, I, I just, I love that you're pointing that out, helping people not fear. And that's actually a hard thing. I mean, how do you tell people or what do you say to them to help to lift fear? I mean, how do you do that? Well, we live in a, in a country that has a, a lot of the founding principles based upon God. So you bring up God and the majority of people that, that I deal with, vast majority, and probably you too, we live in the kind of the, the, the Bible Belt area, have heard of God, know who he is. So I go straight to the the core of that, do you believe in God? And, and all of them are going to say yes. Now, I'm not asking if they're a Christian or not. That's not the point. But I ask them a simple question, do you believe in God? Well, yes. Do you believe in the Bible? Well, yes. And then I go straight to 2 Timothy 1.7. God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. And I said, now, is, is this what I just stated to you? Is that incorrect? Is that a lie? Or is that the truth? And they're going to say, again, with me, it's been every time. Well, I believe that's the truth. Okay, so tell me where you're getting the fear information from. And then I make them walk through that pathway. 
and then they understand where they're getting it from. And I have them turn off those sources immediately and turn on sources of faith because you're right. Faith and fear is like oil and water. They don't go together in the same environment. And further, people need to understand that when a person lives in uh, fear perpetually, that stimulates what's called the autonomic nervous system stress side. It's called a sympathetic nervous system arousal, producing a hormone called cortisol. Now, when cortisol is made, everybody's kind of heard of that stress hormone. When it's perpetuated so fast and so furious and so hyper, hyper cortisolism, I, I, I call it, the body will shift all of its efforts. I didn't say partial, all of its efforts towards your survival mode and away from fighting things like little virus. So you completely decapitate the immune system when we're living in fear. You become completely immunocompromised. The body's supposed to be dealing with that, but it can't because it interprets the environment as you're being chased by a bear continually that's trying to eat you. And we lose hormone function, we lose uh, libido, we lose immune function, we, we don't digest foods anymore, we lose brain function. So it is a, a downward spiral that goes nowhere quickly and weakens the immune system. And right now you're seeing a whole population literally being controlled by that propaganda, Marxist, socialist, communist driving headline thing that we have called the media and it's it's when we get controlled by fear we become robots and we stop thinking for ourselves so when people are in front of me in front of my wife and our team we are going to provoke introspection and self-thought and give a person confidence again that you know what debbie you know what mark you guys are good people you can think for yourself you're a smart person you're blessed and when you do that to someone they literally light up like uh, just a big glowing light and they get free from the bondage of this thing called fear. I think it's a beautiful thing. That's just wonderful. Um, okay, so I want to go back to how you practice. So I know you, you obviously have some patients who come in and who are, are ill with COVID, but you have a practice of your medicine. You and your wife have you practiced medicine that's outside of those COVID patients. And I assume you're teaching this uh, activist healthcare care for yourself to everyone. So it's, so what you're doing, I assume, is kind of a regular uh, ongoing treatment with many patients, just helping them live a healthy lifestyle, which ultimately, and, and what they're eating and not fearing and what they're, how they're caring for their body, that probably protects them from many things long-term, right? I mean, you, you're in a long-term investment for people's actually happy, uh, upbeat, energetic, healthy life. Is, is that what your practice is, but actually before COVID came along, was that what your practice was? Yeah, we haven't changed one bit, Debbie. Uh, we are all about reducing our biological aging processes and making us more youthful longer. I say to people, I want you to die as young, as old as possible. And people can really resonate with that idea. So we're, uh, we're teaching them the spiritual, emotional, physical principles of all I just talked about. And th they get better and when we have people come to us and they just say, hey, can I get a medication for ABC? That's not us. We're not the sick care model. We um, have our own box that is not part of the box, that is not part of this allopathic medicine uh, mess that we have on our hands. We are healers by trade. And when people work with us, it's a relationship. We talk, we listen, we communicate, and we cry with people, we pray with people, we coach people, we help them overcome problems. And we give them all the tools necessary for them 
them to be empowered to have the greatest life possible. I love that. Okay, this is a completely off-the-wall question before we turn to your political ambitions. Yeah. But I, So I have a, a good friend who, here in Dallas who's a doctor, and she posts things all the time, and she's posting about, you know, eating well. And, I, and you know, I, I will tell you my one food thing I simply love is peanut butter. I mean, yeah. I, it, it's like my favorite food group. And I put in one time, so are, are you saying I shouldn't have peanut butter? So what's the answer? Is peanut butter bad? Please tell me no. So peanut butter in <laughs> itself is not bad. But it is one of the foodstuffs that is subsidized by the government. And anytime something is subsidized by the U.S. government, you have to be very suspicious of its quality and its safety over time. One of the things I've seen with peanut butter is the potential carrying of these aflatoxins or mold, which makes sense. The peanuts are in a bin and they get around each other, get moisture and stuff like that. But other than that, peanuts are a natural source. And if you get a, a nice organic um, you know, sort of an unadulterated peanut butter, I think you'd be all right. Okay. I was going to say, we can't be friends anymore if you're going to tell me <laughs> I can't have peanut butter. I was like, I mean, I truly, since childhood, it's just, I think it's such a treat. Okay. So I love what you're doing. And I, even just to have someone here, you've now treated over 9,500 COVID patients and they all recovered. I just think that alone helps people realize Maybe I'm not reading everything I should because, if you're, as you say, if you're just reading mainstream media, the intentional production of fear and the yeah. perpetuation of fear, it has turned much of our society in, into just a, uh, I mean, it's almost like a, like a psychosis or something, just, just a paranoia that um, is very hard to overcome. So to have people just feel uh, and hear from you that there's a way, uh, a healthier way, a long-term way to deal with COVID and not just to overcome it, but to live a healthier lifestyle so you aren't likely, you aren't susceptible um, as you uh, as you thought you were, as all this spewing of statistics may, makes people think you are. Okay, so you're running, I'm sorry, did you want to respond to that before I launch off on yeah, a political just thing? Yeah, real quick, um, it is important for people to understand that to live um, fearful and hopeless is the opposite of living fearless and hopeful. And one promotes death, one promotes life. I would rather have a life that is filled with hope and a fearlessness by a long shot than when I have a life that is full of fear and hopelessness. And frankly, those the latter two will shorten your lifespan. So those are simple principles. And I remember back early on in the COVID pandemic stuff, people used to come into our office just to watch TV and be around people and not wear a mask. And maybe oh, wow. wanted to hug, and we did that. We never closed. We never wore masks. We didn't care. It, it COVID's a distraction from the truth. I mean, that's to, to us. It's like a gnat. Get out of my way. It's it takes us away from reality, which is really what we're doing. We're trying to become hope dealers to the world. I love that. That's really wonderful. And I will tell you on this subject of uh, fear. Part of what's happened with the government's messaging and their constant media's presentation of, for longest time, uh, new cases and new hospitalizations and new deaths and percentage of hospital space filled or not filled or something, it gave a, long, a sense of people a weariness for the long haul. Yep. We have a lot to be worried about. And it caused people to kind of be okay with fear, like, like fear was the intelligent response to what they were hearing. And I, I mean, I, I have friends who kind of live this way. I mean, they're still pretty sheltered. And I, I have said, you know, I mean, I try to send them things, send them links, send them articles. And I, I said, are you, I mean, how long would you live like this? I mean, because would you stay this way, you know, forever? And honestly, the answer is yeah, until yeah. until they say it's safe to go out. Yeah, I would. 
Okay, one other thing I want to get your reaction to, and then I swear we're going to get to your political ambitions, which are really <laughs> fun to talk about. But so this uh, summit, or I did, I hosted a summit here in Dallas in September, and one of the doctors who was there, uh, who spoke, he was on COVID, but just talking about, he was talking about a bit about the danger of the vaccines and the, un, the lack of necessity of the vaccines. If you get early treatments, you'll get right to COVID without a problem, and the vaccines are are not the big be-all and end-all that the government keeps saying they are. So he was very good, but one comment he made that I think everyone really resonated, he just basically said, you know, these, uh, this fear and the, uh, perpetuation of the alleged need for more and more vaccines and then the threat of mutants and the threat of mutations and new viruses and new vaccines to deal with them will never end. He said, everyone wants to get back to the, to normal. It will never end unless we make it end. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Well, I agree with that unless we make it end, because when you think about this from a profitability standpoint, you know, the the love of money is the root of all evil. And when people start loving money more than anything else, evil begins to perpetuate in all walks of life. And that's what we're seeing because the government owns the liability of vaccines, the Food and Drug Administration are together, the government subsidizes foods, they're owned by the pharma, pharma sort of drives commercialism, pharma owns TV stations, pharma goes in the hands of politicians, they donate into that. So it is a, it's a quagmire and it won't stop until someone steps up and stops it. And that someone is going to be the states. And the position of governors, based upon the construction of our founding fathers, gave the governors of states specific powers to push back against federal overreach and, and tyranny, which we have. And right now, the federal government has reached into these states and they begin to tr- control the narrative by fear. It's going to take one state, Debbie, to step up and say, absolutely not. We're not going to have any of this nonsense happening on a mandatory basis in this state, period. End of story. You want to keep your money in your hands? Go ahead. We'll figure out a way to make money anyway. We're going to exist independent of you, and we're going to teach you who's the boss. We don't work for you. You work for us. And I'm not afraid to say the federal government, who's your daddy? Because it's like, seriously, we've got to stop acquiescing and bowing down to these people, this this industry that's it's tearing apart society. And we've seen it drift and shift and uh, we've watched it erode away. And so that's where we are right now. But I think that is the answer to um, stopping this. And I think when one state steps up, as I was saying before we went live, I think other states will too, because it'll give them confidence. And I think that will push back so much the federal government will back off and realize they've messed with the greatest power of all time, which is God, as he's infused, we the people called the American people. I love that. And I should have said to our listeners, so Dr. Mark Sherwood, you are running for, you have declared you're going to run uh, as a GOP candidate for governor of Oklahoma. Uh, there's an incumbent Republican uh, who apparently is going to run again. And so to step up and say, and I, I love this, I, I love what you're saying, because what you're talking about in Oklahoma is not just um, you know, throw your hat in the ring and have a few slight policy differences from the incumbent governor. You're talking about a mindset, and maybe you do the different word, but a mindset that says, you know, we have federalism, which uh, means that essentially the states have primary authority to pass laws, to pass policies, and Washington's supposed to have limited jurisdiction uh, and are only on the grounds that the Constitution provides, and yet COVID is a great example, as many other things are, of Congress uh, in Washington expanding its power over more and more aspects of lives. So for a state to stand up, like you say for Oklahoma, and say, 
We're not doing mask mandates. We're not doing social distancing mandates. We're not doing vaccine mandates. We're not doing any of this. We are not participating in your fear parade. Um, and, and to get people behind that idea and then other, I mean, I, I don't want to jump on your prayer. You go ahead and tell us. So once you're governor, what would you do? Well, I would certainly sign an executive order immediately saying we're not going to do it. But I would do more than that. I would create so much pandemonium by driving so much media attention to that state that the citizens of Oklahoma put so much pressure on the legislators. They'd put a bill on my desk and make it a law. So we, we have to push back like that. I would do the same thing with abortion. Because we pro-lifers will say we we want to we want to keep that uh, going because it's monetized. We don't want to stop abortion. Come on, we need to begin to step up. And I am not afraid of the federal government. I'm not a politician, and frankly, we don't need politicians anymore. We need people that are willing to selflessly and spinefully lead, not to bring attention to themselves, but to protect the current and future generations. Because Debbie, if we don't step up now, and in my opinion, my humble opinion, and advance this cause with a stoppage in this manner, I don't know how we're gonna overcome it. It's gonna continue to perpetuate and roll over us. Government's getting bigger, government's getting more powerful. And with that said, I'm asking people to believe one more time that we the people, just like 1775, we may think we're small in minority, but the power we have in us is great in majority. And we can come back. We can draw the lines. We can hold the line and we won't just be in a battle. We will crush the opposition and we will win. And this will not affect us, but we have to step up now. There's no time like now and embrace this moment as we were talking about before we went live today. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I love your spirit. I love what you're saying. Um, and what occurs when the government pushes fear so much as it has been is that I, first, I, I go back to the idea that this beautiful founding of America idea that we all have rights from God. I always throw in the words because we were born. That's what inalienable rights means. Simply because you exist, your rights from God, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, constitution expands that and the bill of rights, all these rights are inherently yours not because the government decided to give them to you because they're inherently yours because you're a child of God. That's the point of the declarations recitation. And that has been chipped away at over decades and centuries. And this is a crucial point in time because for many Americans, you hear the government saying, um, well, you're not allowed for your own safety and your own health and to protect you, you're not allowed to go to work and you're not allowed to leave your home without a vaccine passport. And you can't go to the restaurants, you can't go to the grocery store. And fear enables the government to win over some portion of the population who just is saying, well, okay, I want to be kept safe. So if that's what they say and what they're doing, what the government's succeeding in doing is convincing, is losing that, that foundational um, uh, inherent assumption of personal responsibility, uh, of personal freedom. And, and, and if we allow it to go on, it will continue to go on and expand into other arenas of, of American life. And you kind of lose. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's time to fight right now and to push back against the idea that the government gets to decide for mm -hmm. you about health care things. Um, so you would push it back against the agenda um, yep. of the whole uh, vaccine. Uh, go ahead. No, whole vaccine. I can hear yeah. you trying to say something. I'd push back against the agenda and understanding that the concept of this, and this is a good way people can remember it that are listening today, when uh, tyranny 
becomes the law or becomes the mandate of the land, defiance becomes not just a good idea, but it becomes your duty. You don't have an option here, folks. You're either going to accept it or you have to stand against it. And I'm calling people to stand against it. I'm not talking about picking a fight. I'm talking about standing your ground based upon these inalienable rights given to us by our creator as clearly laid out in our constitution and the, and the related documents. So we're not talking about a foreign uh, idea here. We're talking about the intent of the founding fathers that documents that are based upon the principles of God so that we won't have the problem we have today. And look, it's probably been my fault too. I, I just haven't stepped up like I should have. I hadn't paid attention like I should have. Uh, we, we all are probably guilty. But here we are at this precipice right now. What are we going to do with that? I say, let's step up, let's fight back, and let's win. I'm in favor of that. Do you have a website yet for your race for governor? Sure. Yeah, we do. It's Sherwood2022.com. People can go right there right now, and they can get download a free app, and we can communicate that. And, and I encourage people, Debbie, this is not just about Oklahoma. Yes, we're talking about governor of Oklahoma, but it's about Texas. It's about other states. It's about being a good example, a shining beacon to set a bar so high that other people want to kind of match that. I don't mind the Me Too movement. I'm not a Me Too guy with this, like we talked about, Me Too government movement and what they did that I'm going to do this. But I will lead the way. I'll set it so high that I'll strive put that bar up there where they'll have to strive to get there so they can follow along uh, back in my own SWAT team days of the police department, previous career, previous life. Um, somebody had to go in the door first. And, and I'm not afraid to be that guy. And, uh, you know, look, I may take a bullet doing it, but look, it's worth it. It's worth it. We've got to get this thing done. And um, again, somebody's got to lead the way. Why not? Why not us, my wife and I, for such a time as this? Love that. And on the subject of the Me Too thing, what we were saying for our listeners before we uh, went live today, you know, I think America or serious patriots are crying out for leaders to speak up. They're waiting for people in positions of authority or just positions of influence to speak up and stand up. And right now in America, the uh, main governor or the, in my view, the top governor doing it is the governor of Florida, Governor DeSantis, yeah. who is just standing up on issue after issue after issue. And he just, he doesn't back down. And I think that for many uh, other Republican governors, they kind of look at him and think, well, I guess if he did that, it's okay to do that. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, he, so he's leading the way. He's, he's kind of embarrassing some of the other Republican governors and they kind of cobble along behind him. But the idea of states standing up, reasserting the concept of federalism, the limitations of the federal government's power, standing up for the freedom of the people, it will be, I think what you're describing is you, can be in Oklahoma starting a wave, starting a movement, start setting a standard that in other states say, wow, that Oklahoma governor did that. I, I could do that too. It is, a, it is exactly a, for such a time as this movement for a need to have people now at this point in American history say, I know what freedom means. I hear what this guy's saying. I want that. I'll give you last shot at anything about your practice or about your, your campaign and how people can find you. Well, I'll just give kind of a, a conjoined response to both. Obviously, from our practice standpoint, you know, we have been gifted with the ability to uh, bring healing into people's lives. And so I encourage people to find us, uh, our processes. It's a, it's a new wave, just like you were talking about in the political arena. Go to Sherwood.tv. All of our stuff is there. Uh, there's some free things that you can get, downloads, the immune protocol, and even some 
um, free eBooks that we've got for you. So resource, resource, resource. From the campaign side, we're just bringing that concept of healing into um, into government because government is full of people that are broken. And we believe if we can bring the concept of healing into government, broken people become healed people. And then we become healed as a nation once again. And um, it's got to start at a state level. So that website is Sherwood2022.com. And uh, we just appreciate you know, being on here, Debbie, and we ask for people's um, humble prayers as we go forward. And, and I just encourage people to uh, believe again, embrace hope, let go of fear, and, and let's just dig deep once again and let that belief and hope drive us to achieve what we know to be possible. So let those things that you've seen been possible become possible again, and let's get this thing done. Dr. Mark Sherwood, you are just one inspiring guy, doctor, candidate for governor, uh, leader, speaker. Um, every time you speak, I know people are just, it's a message of hope and calm and love of America and love of the American people. So I just thank you for everything you do and thank you so much for joining me today. My honor, Debbie. Thank you so much for having me. It's just, it's been a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. So thank you. Thank you right back. All right, my friends, we have one more thing we're gonna to hit today. Before we do that, Mr. Becker, um, I wanna just uh, tell you about this um, my pillow thing. I have had some people on the my pillow uh, write to me and say, well, you know, I wanna be supportive, but you know, I, I'm not really sure I'm, uh, you know, I, I don't know what this whole my pillow thing, if it's if these products are good. I wanna tell you, reassure you, number one, and we can leave that up there for sure. This is while I'm talking. Um, I don't tell you anything on my pillow I haven't purchased myself. In fact, today I was out in the backyard. I was working at the sh at home, trying to get ready for the show, and I really want to get some fresh air. I was walking around the backyard, just kind of, and I realized I had my little my pillow slippers on. They are remarkable. I mean, my feet were warm. The grass was wet. My feet stayed dry. So mypillow.com has great products and. You can see what uh, Mr. Becker has up there, mypillow.com. They have uh, slippers, which as I'm telling you, they really are wonderful. Uh, they have bath towels, which we have and we love. They have the actual, the original product, the pillows. They have the twin bed, queen and king size. And all of those are very, very, they're just high quality pillows. You can order whether you want them soft, medium or hard. I, I guess, who knew there were so many choices in pillows. But in any case, you can do all of that. Uh, at MyPillow.com, great place uh, if you're still looking for Christmas gifts or you just want to send a gift to a friend or you want to gift yourself uh, and blankets and all sorts of great things. So MyPillow.com, um, we have been very happy with it. And the reason I'm pushing it and urging you to go there is you get, you get a discount up to 66% off based on the product you purchase. Um, so you get a good price. You get great quality service. They, they deliver very quickly. I get a small reimbursement for every order. And at the end of the day, uh, we are helping support conservatism because the anti-American left wing of America has targeted MyPillow.com, won't sell MyPillow products in the big department stores anymore or in the, uh, you know, the kind of the really huge stores that won't sell them um, because left-wing America doesn't like uh, MyPillow.com, doesn't like outspoken conservatism. So it's a great way to support conservatism, conservatism get great prices and good, great products and um, support this show. Because as you know, if you watch a show very often, um, I don't have commercials. I don't ever get interrupted by commercials. And uh, so this is your way to support the show. And I hope you will consider doing that. One last topic for today, and then we're gonna rock and roll. Uh, and I talk, call this Buttigieg college debt, you know, is that the taxpayer's problem? 
So let me explain what's happening. So in the, when COVID came along, one of the adjustments made by the federal government was that all these college students that have big loans that they owe, they need to repay, they took out to go for, to college for tuition and all that, uh, that they suspended your duty to repay. And so these people, there was just kind of a hiatus in place where you didn't have to make your college loan payments and you would not be considered to be in default. Well, the Biden administration has now decided that they are going to, as of, I think it's February 1st, your, um, the, the party's over and the people who have college loan debts have to start paying them back. And so, uh, you know, this is a, this is again, people who use the money they got from college loans, went to college and, and now have to pay their money back. And they've had almost a two year break from their duty to repay their loan. So Pete Buttigieg, who is our director of transportation, um, and that is a whole other topic of the absurdity of how, what he has not done, just not done a good job, but we're not gonna talk about that today. So he's um, gay and married to a guy named you know, Chasten. Chasten Buttigieg um, is his husband. And so Chasten put out a tweet, angry that he uh, should be actually expected to do to pay back. So there's the tweet that he put out um, is that the, in the blue on the bottom, and you can see he's saying, LOL. Um, actually, so you see the very bottom is the note he gets, chased him, your student loan payments uh, restart after January 31st, 2022. You'll soon receive a bill from your student loan servicer. Chased him, I, it's hard to believe someone went to college and still puts out a tweet like this with, I mean, just... I mean, a sixth grader could write a better sentence, but LOL, no thank you, Merry Christmas, next. Obviously thinking he was cute and funny and clever and just ba you know, saying, no thank you, I don't want to pay my loan back. Uh, and then, of course, above, uh, this, someone's commenting about that Chasen doesn't appear to be a fan of the Biden administration's plan to restart student loan payments next month. I want to make several comments about that. Number one, there is a problem we have with all the student loans because back in the Obama era, in his quest to take over America and have the federal government control more and more of society, more and more people, more and more money, the Obama administration essentially took over the college student loan process. And as you always know, every time the government gets involved in anything, it's more expensive, takes longer, more cumbersome, less efficient. It's just the nature of government. So Obama had that take over these student loan programs. So now you have all these students with really big college debt. And I want to just say all the factors in play that make this so absurd. So if you have a college and they understand that the federal government is the one who is providing loans to students and basically going to be the backstop for students, you have no incentive as a college to work on having your student loan, having your, the cost of going to college, your tuition, your room, your board, whatever else it is, you have no incentive to keep costs down. Because in the back of your college administrator head is, hey, the federal government's running this. You know what? They'll, they'll back it all. No worries. You have no incentive to price your college in a reasonable way that a student who's actually going to pay back their loan someday because because you've got the, the federal government all behind it. The students pay no attention to how much college or grad school costs. They pay no attention because after all, it's a loan. It's like free, you know? And so they go off to college and they are in, uh, choosing majors like, I don't know, basket weaving, women's studies, idiotic majors that provide nothing of substance to produce, to prepare you for the world. 
So you have students thinking, this isn't costing me anything, and here I am at college, and I'm actually really having a great time in college, you know, majoring in basket weaving, and, um, and women's studies, and I hate America as my major. I mean, these are serious, I mean, and so it's an unserious loan taken out by the student. They're not thinking like you would as an adult would if you took out a loan to pay for a house or a car or any other thing. You would be thinking, is what I'm taking the loan out to purchase, is it worth it to me? Is this a reasonable amount? It's, hey, I want to go to college. Look at this. The government gave me a loan. So you have students thinking it's kind of free. And then you have the immaturity, I mean, telling you, not even a sixth grader, of what you see Pete Buttigieg's husband, Chastin, Chastin Buttigieg, put out. He's complaining that he has to pay his own loan back. That's what he's doing. And he's not alone. He's just a really good example. In this college loan world, if you think you shouldn't have to pay it back, college costs too much money, this isn't fair to me, what you're really saying is, I'm not going to pay it back, and I'm kind of off scot-free, so what do I care? But guess who absorbs that loss? Guess who absorbs the money that was spent to pay for your college education? It's the other taxpayers. It's the guy down the street who works two jobs to put dinner on the table and make sure he has enough income to feed his children, pay his rent or mortgage, pay his car payment. When you deprive the federal government of returning the money that you borrowed, you're essentially forcing other American citizens to make up for your loss. You're thinking in this selfish, infantile thinking of Chase and Buttigieg, and frankly, probably millions more, I don't want to have to pay it back. It's too much money. It's inconvenient. I don't want to do it. I'll, I'll just let it go. I'll just drop it. And, you, you know, the other taxpayers in the country are just going to make up for the loss of, because they aren't, the government's not going to get their loan back. Colleges are not incentivized to price their education and their, uh, their, their everything they provide, their tuition and room and board. They're not incentivized to make reasonable prices. Students aren't incentivized to think about what they're doing, what they're choosing as their majors and how they're going to pay their loans back. And the students who default are not thinking, you know, they're thinking, hey, somehow just nobody pays for this is great. I took out a loan. I got my college education and now I default and hey, you know, it's all free. Well, there's nothing, you know, as a no free lunch, there's nothing free. The government has actually lost that money. And so someone like taxpayers are the ones paying it back. The answer in this ridiculous quagmire created by Obama deciding to get involved and in having the federal government is get the federal government out of the student loan business, put it back in the private banks, back in private lenders of any kind, get it out of the government's hands, have students understand when they go off to college, you're actually going to repay this and there will be severe penalties if you don't. Colleges need to be incentivized to help students, the moment they arrive freshman year, point out to them, you know, when you're majoring in basket weaving and women's studies, there is nothing you're going to be able to do with that degree unless you go around and find a job in some other college teaching basket weaving and women's studies. It's an irrelevantly idiotic, and there are many of these, I'm just picking on those two majors, but many of these idiotic majors don't prepare you for the world, don't prepare you to do anything except default on your student loan. On, on the particular case of this Chasen Buttigieg, uh, the husband of Pete Buttigieg, um, he got a bachelor's degree in theater and global studies. So, you know, 
clearly he's not going to get a job. He's not going to repay his loan. You got a master's in education, studying education, not, and then, and then he got another, he got a job, a kind of job in Harvard Institute of Politics as a fellow. So he's a you know immature, insecure guy who's up there puffing away. And then his real jobs he ever got, he was a substitute teacher, so making nothing. I mean, substitute teacher, a director of curriculum for civic education at the South Bend Civic Theater. So he's he's I mean he's working in jobs that can't possibly give him income to pay back his loan. And then he wrote a book called I Have Something to Tell You, which of course went nowhere. So this is a guy, this is a typical perfect product of left-wing lunatic thinking not grounded in economics not understanding someone's going to pay back that money somebody that money is real got paid to universities universities not incentivized universities need to be helping students when they arrive by the way if they can give them data you know the average student who graduated from here with a women's studies major you know is earning you know eight thousand a year and they can't even pay they living home with their mommy because they can't afford to live Colleges have to take more responsibility in the majors they offer. Students have to get more information at their front end to understand they'll never get a job with these idiotic majors. And they have to understand they will be responsible to pay back their college loans. Now, I will tell you, I have a good friend I've known for years, uh, and her ex-husband uh, got out a college loan. And, you know, he may have one of those inane majors that will never allow you to get a job. Uh, and he couldn't pay his uh, college loan back. And so he defaulted in the college loan. This is before Obama's deal came along. And now it turns out, because uh, she has lamented, he can't get credit cards. He can't get loans. People say, oh, you defaulted in your college loan? These kind of real-life consequences have to be told to young people. And we have too many people, even on the conservative side, saying, well, you know, everything's changed. We used to have this era where you could get a, a, you know, a loan from the university or and a combination of grants and part-time jobs and loans from the bank and cobbled all together. And, you know, those days are gone because colleges are too expensive. And colleges, it costs money to educate people. And so we, we have to help. No, we have to have the whole economic process under the control of the re and the reason of actual real at real economics. Colleges have to realize they do not have to charge $80,000 to show up on the campus to get a major in English, which they can't use. And English might be okay, depending on what you do. I'm getting to the point. We have just have a culture of irresponsibility across the board, federal government, the colleges, the students, and the whole mentality. And even getting to the point where you have conservatives saying, well, we can't have the actual, you know, understand what your loan is for and then pay it back and pick a major that you can get a job in. Yet you have sympathy for that. And actually, they'll also be saying, well, then right now, I mean, all these kids got loans, but you know, they didn't know they're gonna have to pay it back. They didn't really know they were gonna have to pay it back and we have to help them. No, we have to stop the cycle. Stop the cycle of this foolish government involvement in government and in, in loans to start with to go to college. Stop that involvement, get them out of the business, get banks back in the business, get colleges understanding that, in fact, there was one suggestion. People were saying, well, you know, if the, if the uh, government continues to be involved and the student defaults on the loan, the college has to pay the loan back. I mean, you, once you have colleges incentivized paying attention to who they're teaching, what they're educating, what courses they're offering, what majors they're offering, they have no incentive to be, colleges do not, no incentive to be responsible because there's no consequence to them. They, they, they get kids coming there, charge astronomical fees, kids can't pay it back, okay, college marches on, charges the next kid 
uh, that kind of money. There's just a need for a radical readjustment, and many people point out, of course, that there are some students for whom a college degree is not only not necessary, but actually even a negative thing. It adds debt to their life. Have students really focus on what careers you, they can they are able to handle, what careers can make money, what careers will allow them to make to be able to be self-sufficient. We've gotten this in this lunatic place, and I do place a lot of blame back in the Obama administration. I think it was his first term, I don't remember, but where he took, took control of the college loans. And just as with everything else the government gets involved in, except being a good military, the government makes things more expensive, less reliable, less efficient, lower quality, everything about the government, involved, government involvement, because that's the nature of the government doing something versus the private sector. So Pete Buttigieg's husband needs to man up and pay back his loans and stop being, I think he thinks he's probably leading the people in a rebellion against the idea that they have to pay their student loans back. And you know they have to pay their student loans back. Okay, well, I'm wrapping up the show today. I, as I close, at the close of every show, I tell you why the stories we talk about today matter to you. So we start with election updates. Overwhelming evidence of 2020 election fraud abounds and continues accumulating. Wisconsin, and this is this, I, I urge you, by the way, go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. And on the homepage under shows, drop down list of links, read this piece about the Wisconsin data, because I couldn't even begin to summarize it and what I was saying today. Wisconsin, 5.8 million population, 4.5 million eligible voters. So get the first line. 4.5 million eligible voters, 7 million voter registrations. So more people in the rolls than the number of eligible voters. Clear potential for fraud and clear, clearly in need of cleaning out the voter rolls. 93.7 uh, voter turnout in 2020, which is what they claimed in Wisconsin, which is completely preposterous. Preposterous, absurd, it didn't happen. You had the electronic manipulation of voter, voter tabulation software. You had the ability, or in short, you know, computer hacking, vote machine hacking, the, uh, the ability to access all those excess non-existent voter registration, people who don't really exist, and cast their votes to get us to 93.7 voter turnout. 23,000 registered voters with the same phone number. I mean, obvious fraud, 120,000 plus voters registered in Wisconsin alone for more than 100 years. This would mean they are now over the age of 118. I'm all in favor of longevity. I love longevity, but that didn't happen. And we all know this. Pima County, Arizona just had a big hearing two days ago or yesterday. One town with twice as many registered voters than the entire town's population. Canvassing one area exposed more than one third of the votes by non-residents. And I'm, you read these articles, and I want then to urge you to think back to the mocking attitude you heard when we yesterday on this show uh, we played the meet the press meeting when they're just you know these liberal elite condescending uh you know uh, they call themselves journalists they're not journalists they're just man uh, thought manipulators they're they are opinion manipulators are fretting and moaning because they can't get the american people to agree with them that there was no election fraud and everybody paying attention to the facts is saying well of course there was then they never answer things like this that left-wing media never answers things like this. America's elections are completely corrupt, no possible way to consider results reliable. Yet legacy media continues to report, nothing to see here, nothing to see here, move on. Vote Amish, which has become this new expression, meaning paper ballots only. Paper ballots only on election day. That's just vote Amish, I don't know who came up with that. But anyway, maybe the only way 
out of this mess. And the Buttigieg college debt is a taxpayer's problem? No. The Biden administration action to restart college tuition debt collection in 2022 after a temporary COVID moratorium prompts Pete Buttigieg's husband to treat a no-thanks complaint unintentionally highlights the mess of government control of student loans. Government student loans perceived by colleges as government guaranteed, therefore no incentive for colleges to control costs or focus curricula on practical job qualifying majors. Gender, women's studies, global studies lead to few jobs and low pay, but the same high tuition. Government never actually absorbs the cost of forgiving student loans. Only taxpayers do. Remember I've told you a hundred times at least. The government has no money. It has no money. The only money the government has to spend is money they have taken away from taxpayers, individuals, or corporations. Taking that money away, that's how they have any money at all. So every time someone says, the government should pay for, they mean my neighbor down the street should pay for, the guy who actually works two jobs uh, to keep food on the table, he should pay for me to get free things. That's what every single thing when people say government should pay for, that's what they're saying is my fellow Americans who work hard harder than I do should have to pay for what I want. Students have freedom to pursue their educational interests, but they are solely responsible for paying back their loans and any default should be borne by the college, not the taxpayers. Student loan forgiveness decisions should be on a case by case basis, not collective, and there ought to be darn few of them. And that, my very fine friends, is America Community Talk for today. Remember, tune in tomorrow. We have Dr. Mark McDonald out of Los Angeles, a psychiatrist. Brilliant book writing about the government's intentional use of, the, uh, of fear to manipulate the American people into submission on COVID and COVID vaccines. So tomorrow, Dr. Mark McDonald. And for today, I'll say I thank you so much for tuning in to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America, because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America?